You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, okay. I know this is probably going to shock you. Maybe it won't. But I am not a beach person. I know. You see this dark tan and this ruddy complexion, and you say, really? And I say, no. It's truth. No. I, uh, every time I go to the beach, I'm reminded that I am a northerner because I blind everybody else that's there. So here's the deal. Uh, I'm married to somebody, though, who is a beach person. And a couple of our kids are beach people. So a few years ago, we took a trip. We went down to North Carolina, and we got a little beach house on the beach and hung out there for about a week. And uh, it was awesome. It was great. Um, but I did what a lot of you do if you are a northerner with a complexion like mine. You get under the waves as quickly as possible and just kind of hide under there. So I'm bobbing along, kind of cruising through, and um, I felt something happen that maybe you've had this experience, okay? We get to this one point, and all of a sudden, I feel like this force almost underneath me starting to pull me back out where I do not want to go, and it's like this unavoidable, strong, like, current thing. Anybody ever been in the ocean, you're swimming, and you've had that experience? What's that thing called? Undertow. You know that feeling? That feeling is this series. Today starts this quick three-week series called Not Today, Satan, and here's the deal. We are six Sundays into the new year. We just came off this five-week series called Healthy Habits, and I was so encouraged, I've been so encouraged, to hear so many of you say, man, here's how I am putting these things into practice in my life. I'm praying more, I'm reading more, I've actually tried fasting. Worship feels different for me, and I'm actually committing to be a more generous person. And so that's really exciting. God is moving. But here's the thing. Every wave has an undertow. And we've got a brace for it. And if you're like me, you've already felt the undertow of forgetfulness and busyness and stress. Get under your feet and try and sweep you back out to sea. I have. January started out great. And then February hit and I'm like, what in the world? Like, undertow. It's a powerful thing. You want to dig your feet in the sand, flex your knees, stand your ground. But seeing spiritual progress is hard, isn't it? And it's hard because we have an enemy. So here's how these next few weeks are going to go. Today, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare 101, just the basics. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to draw out eight really basic fundamental principles just to get things started. Then next week, we're going to talk about how sin works, what it promises, and why we get hooked. Quick heads up for a lot of you next week. um, We're going to talk about some themes and some imagery that may not be suitable for younger ears. So I'm a parent, and I hate when I get blindsided. And so um, think of next week with a PG-13 rating on it, just to let you know. Uh, If I'm in your shoes, I'd want the heads up. So that's next week, how we get hooked by sin. 
Today, the basic sketch. Next week, we're adding color. And then we're going to wrap up this series by talking about the three most common lies that Satan presents to us. How he whispers and how you can gospel your heart against them. So that's where we're going. But today, there's one big idea, and here it is. This is what I really want to hang our hats on today. Because Jesus is king, the victory is sure. I want to say that again because it's really important. Because Jesus is king, the victory is sure. So before we get into our text this morning, I want to let you know how we're going to approach this topic. (laughs) The series is going to be four things. First, we're going to be Christological, which just means we're going to be Christ-centered. This is not going to be a locker room pep talk where I get you all amped up to go do battle against demons. It's not what we're doing here. This is first and foremost a gospel conversation where we place our trust in and we draw our confidence from the finished work of Christ. And so we're going to weave the power of the cross through this series. This is Christological, Christ-centered conversation. Guys, I'm really excited to teach this series, but I'm terrified because without Christ, like, I got nothing, (laughs) And we need to be very clear about that right up front. Second thing that this series is going to be, we're going to be balanced. In the preface to his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis makes this remark. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devils. Listen to this. He says, one is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Maybe you know people who fall on either side. And so we're going to shoot for balance. And the way we're going to achieve that balance is we're going to ground our study in God's word. We're going to let God's word be the centering that keeps the pendulum from swinging too far either direction. So we're going to be Christological. We're going to be balanced. And third thing we're going to be is courageous. This is not an easy topic to talk about. It shouldn't be. It's heavy. I'd rather preach through Philippians, like happy, joyful, skipping through wildflower meadows, But here's the thing, Um, as we prayed about this and as we think about it, as your pastor, I feel a very strong weight, a responsibility to talk about this because as I look at our world, as you do, I get the feeling that there are tough days ahead for the church. And I want a strong church, don't you? So we got to talk about this stuff. We need to be equipped for whatever's coming. Part of getting there is training around these areas that most of us never get to. So I'm going to ask you to summon your courage for the next couple of weeks. So Christological, balanced, courageous, and then lastly, we're going to be practical. I don't know what you believe, but I do believe that there are dark powers at work in the world that seek to do us harm. But out of his deep love for us as his children, God has given us practical ways to live in victory and to gospel our hearts against fear. And as your pastor, I want to let you know that this weight that I feel isn't just to alert you to the enemy's tactics, but it's also to equip you to know how to gospel your heart when he reveals himself. So we're going to do some heavy theology And like all good theology, it doesn't just aim at your head, it aims at your hands. We're going to get something to do. So one last word, Um, our online community pastor, Matt Brumfield, you heard Brummy speak last week. Uh, He and his wife, Gina, are leading a group in person and online 
around the topic of spiritual warfare. It's called the invisible war. And it starts today, but it's not too late. You can hop on. Um, So if this is something you're interested in and you want to have a little more conversation about it, um, head to ncchapel.online slash group life and you can get everything you need to know. All right? Cool. That's all intro. Let's get to Ephesians chapter 6, all right? Ephesians chapter 6. Go ahead and skip on down to verse 10. You can turn there in your copy of God's Word, or if you like, you can follow along on the screen. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, Paul says, stop. Finally, he hasn't even said anything yet. Here's the idea. We're catching the tail end of Paul's thoughts in this letter to a church in Ephesus. Okay, this is like opening an email and skipping right down to the signature. He said a lot, and we got to understand a little bit about where he's been. So quick context. Ephesians is this six-chapter theology dump truck. Paul has given this church in Ephesus everything they need to know. If New Testament books were coffee, Ephesians would be like this venti black, extra strong, triple shot espresso. It's really, really potent. By the time we get to chapter six, though, the buzz has worn off a little bit. And Paul's readers are asking a question. And maybe after five weeks of healthy habits, it may be the question that you're asking. And here it is. Okay, Paul, I'm in. I want to grow in Christ. I want to do everything you just talked to us about in in chapters one through five. Should I expect any opposition? And that's a really important question because I need to tell you something. The Christian life, faithfully lived, is hard. You can go to church, that's easy. You can sing the songs, that's easy. But when you really get serious about Jesus, stuff starts happening. So I want you to see chapters one through five as Paul leaning forward in his chair, elbows on his knees, face forward, looking at the Ephesian church in their eyes, unloading spiritual truth after spiritual truth. But then here in chapter six, verse 10, he sits back in his chair and his voice lowers a little bit. His face changes from theology-driven pastor to wise, seasoned sage. His tone isn't, here's what you need to know, but here's what I've seen. Next three verses are anchored in three verbs, and these verbs are the keys to unlocking this text. So we're going to take each one of them one at a time and then draw some conclusions. So what comes first? Verse 10, here you go. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That verb, be strong, is a really weird verb in Greek. It's a passive command. Think about that for a passive command. It's different than an active command because a passive command suggests that the main action is not on you to complete really weird. We don't do this too much in English, but it sounds like this. An active command would say, open the door, right? Clear imperative. A passive command says, let the door be opened. It's a little odd, isn't it? An active command would say, throw me the ball. Passive command would say, let the ball be thrown to me. They're a little awkward, they're a little wooden, and they're really important. Here's why. Because if this was just be strong, We like that. 
Like we're good with the be strong part, right? Faith over fear, God's bigger than the boogeyman. But here's the idea behind being strong. Here's the catch. Paul's not just saying be strong. He's not just saying dig in, muscle up, cowboy up for Jesus, right? This is gonna be okay. That's not what he's saying. He's saying be strong, how? In the Lord. And in whose strength? In the strength of his might. We don't want to gloss over this. This harkens back to Jesus' teaching, right? He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do, help me, nothing. Or even Paul's word of the Philippians, where he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, right? The sense of my inability to be strong when I need to be. Brennan Marshall can do absolutely nothing of eternal consequence. That is an incredibly sobering, humbling, dependence-inducing thought. I am not the source of my spiritual strength. Paul wants us to understand one thing right out of the gate, and here it is. The victory isn't ours because the battle isn't ours because the strength isn't ours. That's a very big deal. The victory isn't ours because the battle isn't ours because the strength isn't ours. We should resist any call to spiritual warfare that doesn't start from a place of complete dependence on Christ. We're going to get back here in a few minutes, but here's why this matters. I'm convinced that the reason so many Christians fail spiritually we lose the battle before we start is because we start the battle in our own strength. That's an indictment and it's also a confession because I'm the exact same way. We problem solve when we should pray. We work when we should wait. We speak when we should be silent. And the gospel corrective to all of that is because Jesus is king, the victory is sure. So that's the first verb, this first command. Second command, take a look in verse 11. Here's what he says. Put on the whole armor of God, and then his purpose clause, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And now he flies a little bit lower. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, there's a lot there, but we're going to key in on the verb. He says, put on. It's exactly what it means. It's a clothing word. It means to put something on when dressing. In this case, it's used for dressing for battle. But there's something unexpected about this verb, too. The first one was a passive command, meaning that the action is done entirely of somebody else's strength. This one is a middle-voiced verb, which is even more complicated. It's really rare, but they're this like linguistic gem that grammar nerds love. A middle-voiced verb is used when you do something and something is done to you at the same time. It's really rich. Here's an example. When I get home, one of the first things I do is I go hug Mandy. Right? It's just kind of this rhythm that we've fallen into over the years. Go and we give each other a hug, right? And because it's a hug, like I'm hugging her and she's hugging me back. Have you ever experienced a one-sided hug? Like the most awkward thing ever? <laughs> like you're standing there and like you're hugging them and they're just like this? You know? By definition, a hug is a cooperative thing. 
Okay, so let's read this into what Paul's saying here. Put on the armor of God. If we could take this literally, it would read, put on and let it be put on you. Both of these things are happening at the exact same time. Do it and let it be done for you. As you start this, someone else is right there with you doing it, which beautifully, mysteriously, wonderfully begs the question, if I'm doing this, who is there helping me? Church, who is it? Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And that's the art behind this whole spiritual warfare thing. Living in victory over all these rulers and authorities and powers and forces of evil is that my armoring is not a one-sided thing. That Jesus is eager to armor me. That's a great thought. Sure, I do it, but it's being done to me. I'm putting it on, but Jesus wants to put it on me. I'm there getting dressed, but Jesus is making sure everything fits. And there's no holes. There's no chinks in the armor. There's no loose ends. Implication, spiritual warfare, this doing battle against rulers, authorities, and powers, and forces of evil, is a relationally cooperative thing. Hear me, I will only ever be as strong in Jesus as I am connected to Jesus. I'll only ever be as strong in Jesus as I am connected to Jesus. Because just like we've been saying, because Jesus is king, the victory is sure. Third verb. So you got be strong, verse 10, put on, verse 11, and now get down to verse 13. Therefore, now some of you know this one. For those of you who don't, there's this quick little Bible study tip that is so cheesy, you are never going to forget it. Anytime you read the Bible and you come across a therefore, you need to stop and realize what it's there for. Cheesy, you're never going to forget it. But here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, in light of everything I've just said, this. So I just made a bunch of points. I just called you to some things. And now this. So what's this about? Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Take up the armor of God. Now this one, you had a passive, you had a middle. This one is an active imperative. This one means it's all you. Jesus has done everything. He's laid it all out there. This is how good God is. He's given you all the weapons you need. He's given you everything that you need to do. But at some point, you've got to own your own spiritual health. At some point, you've got to take it up. At some point, I've got to own this. Practically, what does it look like? It's where we've been the last five weeks. His word strengthens us. Prayer forms us. Fasting focuses us. Worship reminds us of what satisfies and generosity reorients us. That's what this looks like. These disciplines and others are how Jesus puts his armor on us. Because Jesus is king, the victory is sure. So that's Ephesians 6. Now here's where we got to go next. We're going to build a theology of the enemy. Who he is, what he's about, and what you need to know. And so with these three commands out there, I want to take the next 15 minutes or so 
And I want to draw out eight basic principles, eight principles for understanding spiritual warfare. We're going to spend about two minutes on each one of them, okay? So here we go. Principle number one, there is a spiritual realm that is just as real as the physical realm. Paul mentions this at the end of verse 12. He uses the phrase, the heavenly places. Here's what he has in mind. As part of his creation, God has created things, beings, realities that are just as real as the ones we do see. But our mortal eyes are kept from seeing them. And if you look in God's word, there are times where the veil drops. Right? This is not normative. We shouldn't seek this out. We shouldn't expect this. But it happens. If you look in God's word, you can get instances of this. People have encounters with supernatural beings. So the spiritual realm can be discerned, it can even be felt, but it's invisible to our mortal eyes, yet very, very real. And in this spiritual realm, there are angels. God's word talks about angels. These are created beings who serve at the pleasure of Almighty God. But there are also those who live in rebellion against Almighty God. Paul lists them here in Ephesians 6 in something like a hierarchy. There's rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and forces of evil. So there is a spiritual realm just as real as the physical realm. Principle number two. Those evil forces in that realm are led by a fallen angel named Lucifer. Now this is dark stuff to talk about, but we want to understand what does God's word say about this? We learn about this fallen angel in two places in God's word. The first one is in Ezekiel chapter 28. I'm just going to read this to you because I want you to listen to how he is described. This is God talking about this fallen angel. He says, you were an anointed cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. It's an interesting portrait, isn't it? That's Ezekiel's take. Here's Isaiah's take. This is from Isaiah 14. Just listen. He says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the kites of of clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's how Satan's described in this spot. So that's Ezekiel and Isaiah. A couple quick observations that we need to draw from these texts. First off, Satan is a created being. We've got to square with that. The first thing you need to know about the enemy is that he is created. He's not God's opposite but equal. Okay, I saw this picture once of like Jesus and Satan arm wrestling. That's not true. <laughs> He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He is created by God, and that means he is limited. 
Second thing we need to know about these, this portrait here is that he was originally a high-ordered angel. Ezekiel says he was a guardian cherub. Satan was near to God in his original place. But he wasn't satisfied with what God gave him, and he wanted more. He wanted God's place. He wanted, I want to be like God. I can do this better than God can. And so God cast him out of heaven. The last thing we want to draw from this portrait is that he's beautiful. Isn't that interesting? Ezekiel uses the word splendor and beauty. Isaiah calls him the day star, son of dawn. I say that because we need to say that this isn't Yosemite Sam with a pitchfork. Okay, this isn't some silly cartoon. This is a real being with cunning and influence and intelligence. So what is he about? Principle number three. He is fundamentally set against the purposes of God. And this is where things start to get really practical. Born out of his pride, the enemy has oppositionally set himself against everything that God is for. What's that mean? Every time the gospel is preached, he hates that. Every time we talk about salvation in Jesus' name, he hates that. When we talk about, when we worship, when we make much of Jesus' value, the enemy sets his army to work against that. Everything God sets out to do in his world, the enemy tries to thwart. Sometimes he uses people, sometimes he uses ideas, sometimes he uses consequences, sometimes he twists God's word. We've got to square with this. Every time there is gospel movement, the enemy tries to work against it. Quick aside, if you are taking the call to discipleship seriously, that is to say, if you're taking this gospel message from like interesting concept that gets me into heaven and you're moving it into how I want to live my life daily, if you're trying to bring every aspect of your life under the authority of Jesus, you are just as much in his crosshairs as a preacher in the pulpit. I want to talk about that more next week. Principle number four. He is mortally wounded and he will not recover. Now this is good news. He is mortally wounded and he will not recover. For this, we're gonna jump to Revelation chapter 12. You can turn there if you like or you can just listen. Revelation chapter 12. If you thought Ezekiel and Isaiah was some trippy imagery, just buckle up. You can say nothing yet. Here's Revelation chapter 12. As time rolls on, what Ezekiel and Isaiah saw as a day star, as an angel fallen, John, who wrote Revelation, sees as a dragon. Here's what he describes. Just listen. He says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Those are crowns that are stacked. His tail swept down a third of the stars out of heaven and cast them to earth. That's probably a reference to fallen angels. Get this, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now that's interesting. You have this very important birth of a male child who is to be a king. And Satan doesn't like that. But it gets better. Now, war rose in heaven. 
Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, praise God. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. That's a big deal. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. This is one piece that we cannot miss. The battle is over. He is mortally wounded, and he will not recover. How did this happen? It was right there in verse 11, by the blood of the lamb. Tell me, who is the lamb? Jesus. Okay, that name sends him running. This big, scary red dragon turns into a pitiful little grasshopper at the name of Jesus. He is mortally wounded. He will not recover. Our Jesus has finished him. Praise God. But what's with that little thing at the end? Where he says, woe to you, earth and sea. That leads to principle number five. He is furiously working toward your destruction. John continues, just listen. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring on on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, I don't want to scare you, but that should sober us. It shouldn't cause you to be afraid but it should sober our self-perception. He knows his time is short. He knows the end is coming. He knows what's waiting for him. He knows he can't win, but that doesn't stop him from trying to take down as many people as he can. Peter picked up on this idea when he wrote in 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What does that mean, devour? What do you mean he's furiously working for my destruction. Satan works to destroy five areas of your life, and I'm going to get them to you really, really quickly. Here they go. First, he wants to discourage your emotions. He wants to just take you out at the knees. He wants to discourage your emotions. He wants to distract your attention, meaning like focus on anything but Jesus. As long as you don't care about Jesus, it's okay. Let me just distract your attention. Third thing, he wants you to doubt God's love. He wants you to believe that God could never love you, that you are garbage and you are too far gone. Then he wants to devalue your identity, saying you will never step out of the old you. You'll never become new, not you. And then lastly, he wants to downplay your impact. You can't make a difference, not you. You're pitiful. God will never use you. Those are all things that Satan loves to tell you. I'll hit him again really quick. He wants to discourage your emotions, He wants to distract your attention. He wants you to doubt God's love. He wants to devalue your identity. 
and he wants to downplay your impact. Everything God wants to build in you, he wants to destroy. He is furiously working for your destruction, which leads to principle number six, and this is right from Paul. Our battle, our present battle, is with him and his army. Did you catch Paul's corrective in Ephesians 6? He says, our battle is not against what? Flesh and blood. Very critical idea. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Now, why is that so important? Because it's our natural inclination when we are attacked to look for an attacker. And often, our eyes land on the most convenient, closest scapegoat. And Paul wants to make sure we see the battle rightly. The problem is not your spouse, not your kids, it's not your boss, it's not your crazy neighbor. Nope. The enemy loves it when you can think that way because if you think that way, guess what? You never see him. Let's fly over this one a little bit closer, can we? If you find that you are typically quick to vilify other people, if you find that it's easy for you to hate the other side, whatever that means, if you kind of naturally slip into this simmering anger toward people, Satan already has his foot in the door. I'm serious. That's exactly what that text means. When Christians misdiagnose the problem, everybody loses. When the church fights the wrong fight, everybody loses. When God's people can't see the real enemy, everybody loses. Guess who wins? The enemy does. Tell me this isn't a game-changing truth that we need to get our heads around this time. Well, if I can't vilify other people, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) Principle number seven. Since our battle is spiritual, our tactics must be spiritual. Hear me. Christians are expected to do battle. I want to be clear with you on this. You are called to battle. We are not these like contemplative people who just sit around all day with like more mugs of tea and wait for heaven. No, 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 no. You are called to do battle. Here's the catch. We do it differently than the world does. That's the catch here. Our weapons, our tactics are spiritual. They're right there in Ephesians 6. You can read more about them. Quick word picture for you. A Christian charging into spiritual battle with the weapons of the world Looks like a knight getting ready for a jousting tournament, like he's getting on his horse, he's got all armored up, and he goes and he reaches for a pool noodle. Silly picture, right? But that's what we look like when we charge into a spiritual battle with the weapons of the world. When you roast someone on Facebook, when you vilify somebody, that's what you look like. You look like a knight with a pool noodle. And it feels good because we're doing something, right? Because we're active. We're going to go out and charge in. And you may really like your pool noodle. You have the best pool noodle in the entire Walmart pool noodle bin. But nobody's mind ever changes. Nothing ever happens. You don't take any traction. The kingdom of God looks just the same as it did before you charged into battle. You're just a little more beat up. Why? Because you charged into a spiritual battle with a limp, ineffectual weapon. Distracted knights with pitiful pool noodles. And that leads to the last principle, and this is probably the deepest of all. Principle number eight. Our enemy's ultimate intent is to undermine 
Jesus's ability. This is real big. His ultimate intent is to undermine Jesus's ability. And that principle comes right from the word schemes in Ephesians 6, 11. To understand it, we've got to go back to the beginning. Do you remember where we were when we first read about the enemy? Where was he? Where does he first show up in God's word? In the garden. In the garden. The very, very beginning of all things. Our spiritual great-great-grandparents are there. He whispered. They turned. And they ate. What did he tell them? What did he say? It's the same thing he's saying today. His game hasn't changed. He's been doing the same thing for millennia. Here's what he said. Is God really good to you? Did God really say? Does God really know what he's talking about? Surely there's more. Interesting, he doesn't answer the question. He just asks it. He just opens the door and invites them in. It's this seed of doubt that grows to distrust, that blossoms to disbelief, and then explodes into despair. Let me bring that into our lives today. For those of you caught in a marital affair, and in a room this size, and those of you watching online, there's a good chance, just speaking statistically, that's somebody. Do you know why you're doing that? You're doing that because somewhere along the way, the enemy presented you with the idea that what God has given you in your spouse or in your singleness is not good enough for you and you deserve more. It's the same tactic, just updated. For those of you caught in an addiction and pick the flavor, same thing. Somewhere along the way, the enemy presented you with the idea that this thing will be Jesus for you. You can count on this to satisfy you. And in your head, you know Jesus is better. And you say it and you sing it. But inside, it kind of became a thing for you. And here's where it gets really complicated. For those of you caught in this web of, of self-shame and self-doubt and self-hatred, same deal. Somewhere along the way, the enemy gave you the idea that Jesus' ability to give you a new identity was not enough. Jesus can't do that. You're too far gone. Your life is too messed up. You are garbage. You've made too many mistakes. And he's trying to get you to believe that lie. So he constantly resurfaces the old you and tries to downplay Jesus' power in your life. Here's the point with all of that. At the crux of every sin is the subtle suggestion that Jesus is not able. I'll say that again because you've got to get that one. At the crux of every sin is the subtle suggestion that Jesus is not able. He's not able to satisfy you. He's not able to make you new. He's not able to save you. He can't redeem your past. He can't fix your present. He can't secure your future. And guys, those lies can be so strong. They're this unavoidable undertow, but they are lies because they come from the mouth of a liar. And they are lies because those accusing words were never meant for your ears. And they are lies because Jesus, the Lamb of God, is able, is good, is sovereign, is worthy, period. So let's gospel those for a minute. Jesus is able to satisfy you. 
Jesus is able to save you. He is able to make you new. He wants to redeem your past. He's eager to fix your present. He will secure your future. You can trust him because he's good. You can follow him because he's sovereign. And you can worship him because he's worthy. Because Jesus is king, the victory is sure. Confessing Jesus' ability and living in light of it is one of the greatest weapons of spiritual warfare. You want your kids to survive in a broken and breaking world? I do. Be satisfied in Christ. You want your marriage to withstand whatever the enemy is going to throw at it? Be satisfied in Christ. You want to keep your sanity in the middle of all the crazy? (laughs) Be satisfied in Christ. You run to him. You cling to him. You hold on to him. You stand in his strength. You let him put on his armor and you take up arms. Get ready for war because our king has already declared a victory that can never be overturned or questioned. He has said it is done, and his word matters. He achieved that victory on a rough wooden cross where the wrath of God was satisfied out of perfect love for you and for me. Because Jesus is king, the victory is sure. So here's where we're going to go. We're going to head right into celebrating the Lord's Supper. So for those of you here In the room, you probably got packets when you came in. You can get those out now. For those of you watching online at home, you can go ahead and grab those. Here's why. The Lord's Supper is about one idea. The Lord's Supper is about the sufficient death of a worthy king. This is our dual declaration of our king's authority over death and his ability to bring life. But here's the catch. The king who declares victory is the same king who willingly dies. Isn't that a paradox? The blood that seals the enemy's forever fate is the blood that brings us life. We have nothing to fear, absolutely nothing. You have no reason to doubt, none whatsoever. Because Jesus is king, the victory is sure. So here's how we'll do this in the room this morning, also for those of you watching online. The band's gonna play a song, and the words of the song speak to this reality very cleanly. And I want you to think about these words. I want you to just sit, take some time, and then on your own, go ahead and take the bread, First, that represents Jesus' body that was broken for you on that cross. Then, when you're ready, you can also take the juice, which represents Jesus' blood, which was poured out for you. And it's that blood that grants us victory. What a powerful picture that is. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that the victory is sure. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to be afraid of this enemy You've already achieved every victory we need. So Father, we just want to declare that as we celebrate with these tokens this morning. Father, we love you. Say thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, 
It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.